Anyway, <clears throat> anyway, maybe this would be a good time for me to ask you some questions, Andy. Sure. Okay. Sh shoot. The uh, interrogator becomes the interrogate E. Great. Um, well, I, one of the first things that strikes me about your music, Andy, is how many how many genres you you work in. <laughs> um, I've you know obviously I played with you. For people who don't know, Andy and I were in a band. But we're both in a band called The Nerve with uh, Jason Campbell, who is also going to be releasing material on our label. It's um, a very incestuous. It is. Group. It is. We're going to have and really I mean ugly children. Yeah, I, I mean that in a literal sense. I was. Yeah. Thank good God we're all men. Yeah. So we can't procreate. Um. Anyway. Um. But there, you know, there's there's that work which is definitely uh, more in the in the rock vein. Um. There's a a body of acoustic work that um, Andy has done, um, which. By the way, I I tend not to be the type of person who enjoys that type, kind of music, but I do enjoy I do enjoy Andy's work. You've made that clear on several uh, occasions. I, I guess I have. And there's this you know this body. I don't know if there's this body of work of experimental work, but there's definitely um, this constant dialogue with I, I know with knowing Andy, Andy personally going on with um, with theory and music, and mm -hmm. uh, we're not talking about the circle of fifths here. So. Uh, I'm not. I'm not a very. I'm not. A, I'm not a technical musician. I've always. I've. I've been almost kind of the opposite of Ben in some ways. That I've always approached things from an intuitive sense, and I've. I've always just. I've always just trusted my ear over any other instinct. So I, you know, and I find the numbers and looking at sheet music a little too much for me to grapple. I think that's why I got so excited about. Um, making alternative scores, because I was like... And it wasn't the kind of thing where you just, like, draw a picture and, like, oh, here's my music or something, because I think that's... That can be a kind of a cop-out, I think, sometimes, because it doesn't... <clears throat> I wanted to write music that would be, uh, in terms of scoring it anyway, I wanted to score it such that it could be reproduced, not just so that... Um, so somebody could look at it and be like, wow, what a cool piece of artwork... And wow, you make music from it? That's neat. Well, it's kind of a novelty to me to think that. I, I prefer to have a functional score rather than a representational one, if that makes any sense. Um, so, but yeah, like, so, you know, I had uh, scores that were all in text and had, like, little graphs on them for pitch contours, and I had, they were basically instructions, you know, it read almost kind of like a script um, or like a technical book or something. That brings me to an interesting point, and sorry to interrupt you there, uh -huh. but um, when you're describing some of your work as reading like a script, that to me um, really brings to light a lot of a lot of the work that I've seen of yours, or some of the pieces that I've seen of yours performed, in that I know you have some experience in theater, Yeah. and um, I can't help but ask, and or even just observe um, some of that aspect, even in the language of how you're describing your scores as, be, as being scripts. Um, can you talk about that for a second. Um, well, I guess a, a few of the pieces. I mean, most of the you know I've I've written just a handful of them, which may or may not be a shame because I, I I go through this uh, sort of cyclical. Well, is it too indulgent? And then I go. You know, I just kind of go back and forth. Sometimes I think my experiments are too indulgent, and then sometimes I think my pop music is too indulgent. So I just don't know where. I just I'll just decide to go back and forth until I land somewhere. But and maybe I'm not too concerned about landing anywhere. But um, <clears throat> no, as far as the theater um, sort of reference, or you know, I, I can't really define where that really became uh, something that I wanted to do. I guess. Um, because my those pieces are very theatrical. I mean, they they might as well be some sort of weird performance art. It's not necessarily music, even. Um, but I think my fascination started with the use of the voice as an instrument. And I, I see the voice as being... This is going to sound really altruistic and corny, but I see the voice as sort of... Everybody's got one. It doesn't cost any money, and everybody's is unique. And... That's why it doesn't matter if you're talking or singing or screaming or whatever it is, or whispering or sneezing or you know there's just there's so many things you can do with it and really it's my, in my opinion it's one of the most versatile and it's certainly the oldest synthesizer. 
And, uh, you know, I see language in a way as almost a kind of, 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 a, of a synthesis. I mean, if you break apart the component parts of language in terms of consonants and vowel sounds and diphthongs, etc., and, and, you know, breaking those up into, uh, you know, into, into their co component parts, I, it's kind of like a synthesis. I mean, and, and it's also fascinating to me how um, certain words will sort of sound like what they are, I mean, maybe not necessarily onomatopoeia necessarily, and maybe that's a sort of psycho, psychological connection that's bred into us from birth that somehow brown, for example, just sounds right. <laughs> like if you hear, like sometimes when I hear in another language, I hear a color. Like, I don't know, like uh, I think in French, you know, rouge is like red or pink or whatever, and it's red, isn't it? I think it's red. I think so. And it, it, that kind of sounds right to me. It almost sounds more right than red for some reason. I don't know why that's maybe just my own sort of delusion. But I think going back to the theatrical point of view, um, I mean, I guess maybe you could see it from the outside. I've been a sound designer for theater for, you know, seven years now and done several productions. And I guess you could maybe see a correlation there that, okay, it kind of makes sense. He's worked on plays and that's why he's doing these weird theater performances, but, you know, I gotta make a confession right now, I don't, I like theater sound design, but I don't necessarily like theater. I think a lot of traditional theater is done uh, from a very sort of paint-by-the-numbers kind of way, and I, I love telling stories, and I think the storytelling aspect of it is, is extremely important, um, especially in the sense of, being, of it being a tradition, an oral storytelling tradition. But I think that the form and the perf and the content uh, could be a lot different, and I think that's sort of where my that's another sort of influence is that I would just see these I would work on them I'd work on these uh, th theater productions that I I enjoyed them for their ability to capture my attention as being uh, like any other story. Um, like story that you'd hear at bedtime when you're a kid, something that just sort of has enough of a plot to keep you interested and has enough whistles and hoots in it to keep you, you know, entertained, uh, rather than using theater as a, as a medium of itself to sort of convey ideas that not necessarily there has to be a plot or, or a set even. So, I don't know, I think the pieces that I did do uh, reference theater in terms of character and script, um, but I tried to use the voice musically, so I don't know what you call it. I mean, it's probably, like like Cardu I brought up earlier, it's probably a lot like that. I mean, it's just like a scratch vocal ensemble. It's, um, um, I, because I, that was the other thing too, going back to the virtuosity. I didn't want singers necessarily for my ensemble. I wanted people who were just willing to perform, and... I, the only limitation there was is like they had to be able to match a pitch. And it didn't even have to be in the same octave. It was just you have to be able to, if you hear a pitch, you got to be able to sing that. And 90% or more of the population can do that. Um, yeah, I guess that's sort of the long answer with the theater thing. I don't know if that's... It's interesting you brought up sound design with that. Um, I know, you know, particularly the last couple of years, um, you know, you've been employed in sound design. Um... I've I've seen your work like for example for the woman in black. Um, oh, you went to that? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, we went. Um, Did you and Jason go or? No, me and Michelle. Oh, okay. Yeah. Did I give you comps for that? No, we just we, just, oh. we went to it. Sorry we took about our that. Uncle, it was it was good. Um, but anyway, why we, don't I remember that? I guess you know. Anyway, yeah. Yeah. Um, but just that work. I mean, it was. <clears throat> I I look at that work and as a. Uh, compositionally, and it's it's rich. It's 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 rich. It's highly textural. It um, it's evocative, even in itself. If, you know, for example, I caught myself closing my eyes a couple times, and it doesn't sound like a weirdo or anything. But um, and and just and just listening to it, mm -hmm. and um, yeah, sure, it, it tells a story. Um, but a lot of your sound design work, I think, uh, stands on its own as a in my opinion as a piece of music as a sound design or because i think I, I i think let me just sort of assume where you're going with that okay sound design is 
can be music. Yes. Or rather, musical sensibilities are combined within sound design. I think either of those can can and are true. Um, and I see elements of that both in in your work in sound design. And I it you know, it begs the question, um, how how, if at all, and I'm assuming that it has influenced your work compositionally for work that's not intended for a theatrical or, or film situation. <clears throat> well, it's hard, it's hard to say what the impact is because I mean I've done a few pieces that specifically um, employed some of the more narrative uh, tendencies of sound design. In other words, you know, I would put sound design elements into my music, or I should say, sound effects into my music, and it's something that I'm actually going to be playing with more. Um, because I've always been sort of a uh, wanting to be a film composer. Because um, I have this thing about film. I I think that film is the the highest. This is going to sound really lofty, but <laughs> I think. I, I but I think it's true to a certain extent. I mean, it's just an opinion, but I think film it could very well be the highest or the highest form of art that humanity has ever produced. And I mean that in the sense that. It employs every discipline, every discipline. Movies with fight scenes have choreography. They have people who make props who are artisans and, you know, blacksmiths and l people who work with leather and you have makeup and you have prosthetics and you have people who design and build sets. You have painters, you have sculptors, you have people who build the models, you have concept artists who draw it, you have um, photographers who take still photography, you have the cinematographer. I mean, you have... And plus, then, and then you have the whole sound aspect of it. And really, when it all comes together, a lot of those professions are all just part of what you see on the screen, uh, which is really, in my opinion, and in George Lucas' opinion, is half of what the picture is. Without the sound, um, you lose dialogue. You lose uh, a lot of sense of place. Uh, you might show an establishing shot of of a suburban street and know that it's a suburban street, but if you add the sound in and you have a distant freeway, let's say, or if you have a barking dog or a crying child or a, a train off in the distance, you give it a whole different sense of depth and mood that you don't get with the two dimensions of a screen. Um, <clears throat> God, how did I get into that? What was your question? I was oh, just, just wondering how it influenced your, oh. your purely, if there is such thing as purely musical work. I'm choking on those words, though. Oh, uh, on musical? Or work? <laughs> or both? Um, I guess purely is what I'm choking on. Oh, okay. About. Yeah. yeah. Um, I don't know. Well, for example, the next... Okay, going back to the whole film thing. I, I, I go off on film because I, I love it. But um, uh, I've always wanted to be a film composer... And I have done some stuff, <clears throat> but um, one project that I'm working on now, which incorporates, I think, sort of seamlessly, um, you know, music and sound design, is the notion of creating an album that is maybe somewhat akin to what Eno was thinking about in terms of concept, or at least an ambience, or or a sense of space. Um, with his, uh, what is it, music for film or whatever, film music, whatever it's called. Um, but that's that was more based in a less concrete world, in my opinion. Um, ambiences are not necessarily concrete. There are things in ambiences that are concrete, like uh, crickets or... But his was more, I guess, sort of nebulous or maybe surreal, I guess is maybe a better word. I want to explore the idea of creating scenes, and this might actually go back into the sort of theatricality of my work sometimes, is that I want to create little vignettes that, through sound and music, don't even require a picture to tell a story. In other words, I want the music to be evocative of the mood, and even a, a time period, and or uh, 
especially, especially mood. I mean, music is essentially, I mean, there's, I mean, everybody, I, I don't think that there's a musician alive, unless you're like, almost like ignorant, sorry, but <laughs> that when they hear a music cue in a film that's really sappy or overdone, there's maybe a part of them, at least if they're paying attention uh, in an objective sense, that they're kind of like, oh man, here comes that crappy music. That happens to me every time in a movie where there's a licensed piece of music, when there's like a pop song that comes in with vocals in a film, and I'm kind of like, oh god, like this is awful. Like because all of a sudden now, the mood for me is totally gone. A lot of times, unless it's like you know, uh, the music is integral to the to the plot or the place, or the setting. You know, like Easy Rider. Like they're gonna be jamming out to music while they're driving around their motorcycles. There's a whole like. I don't know if you want to call it lifestyle or image or, you know, there's this facade that they're, that they're, you know, putting out there. Whereas when it seems to come in and it may be a really emotional part where you're supposed to be less involved with the music and more involved with the picture and then they throw in a pop song, I'm kind of like, what the hell was that? So in saying I want to write music with sound effects, I'm not looking to write pop music. I'm looking to write stuff that, in a sense, is borrowing a lot from people like Mancini and Morricone and... Uh, Bernard Harriman, but also from, uh, you know, sort of um, like Curtis Mayfield and and people that could integrate. I love 70s crime films because a lot of them, they have these chase sequences in them, in them where there's like these, you know, bongo drums and like a horn line and there's like this funky wah-wah guitar. But the cool thing about it is, is it's still really evocative without it being like... Um, without it taking you out of the picture, in my opinion. I, it doesn't take me out of the picture. I get more involved, and I think that's kind of the point. So my project, which is in a, a stage of development now, I don't know if you want to call it half full or, or half empty or whatever. I don't know if it's done, going to be done anytime soon, but it's to integrate the idea of having a narrative. Like I have this song called Vice Squad. I was and, just going to mention that, yeah. And there's actually a lot of sound effects that aren't in there that I want to put in there. Um, but basically, I want there, there's these footsteps, and there's car doors, and there's you know there's a sense of stuff happening and movement of people actually moving. And it's like if you were watching a film and you closed your eyes, you would hear this. And you know this guy's going around killing somebody, or but you're not quite sure. And in fact, in a lot of ways, it doesn't necessarily matter because what's important is that there's an emotional plot line. That there's something, uh, there's a chase going on. We don't know who's chasing who uh, necessarily. There's car crashes and sirens, but we're not quite sure. Like, there's obviously a bad person involved um, who's going around doing the killing. But on the other hand, are they a good person? You know, you never, and that kind of thing is what you might lose without dialogue. I don't think I would ever include dialogue in my theatrical, or I should say my filmic uh, music or whatever you want to call it my sort of fake or I like to call it um, scores for films that don't exist um, but you know it sounds a lot like a lot like um, well not exactly but um, work that's fairly programmatic um, such as uh, Zorn's work here and I'm gonna, I'm gonna sound like a jerk here but um, at what level um, or how how in thinking about that work or is this even a consideration or necessarily a problem? Do you um, embrace those programmatic aspects without um, delving into kitsch? Well, I think delving into kitsch is, is kind of the point sometimes. I mean, it depends on what your goals are. Because um, I'm not principled about music. I'm kind of a whore. I don't really care if it sounds like John Denver or if it sounds like... Uh, you know, Lydia Lunch. I don't really care. Like, I'm not, I don't, I don't value one over the other necessarily. And I, certainly I don't want to be another Anne Murray or Burl Ives. I don't want to, but that's kind of the point too, is that I might write a song that'll sound like a Bobby Darren song, but the next song I'll write will be something that sounds like a crappy, I mean, a, a crappy lounge song or something. I mean, I don't, I guess I, and by saying that, like, yeah, it is, it is programmatic, it programmatic, and it's very, uh, in a lot of ways, it's very um, predictable, and it's very canned in a lot of ways. And I personally, I, 
I've decided, there was a point where I cared, and I was like really against it, and I really saw myself as copping out, and that I wasn't doing anything original, but I also see, and this kind of ties in, I think you, you had a similar realization, I was like, well, I want to do something so original, and it kind of dawned on me when I found out, after I came up with this really original idea for this theatrical vocal piece that we were talking about, came up with the idea, and then I read, you know, and I thought it was really original, I thought I actually was doing something original. And then I read about how Cardew had done it 50 years prior. You know, completely right. isolated events. I mean, it's not like he's Newton and I'm, uh, what's his name? The other guy who invented calculus. What's his name? I don't, I don't know. You know, inventing calculus at the same time at a different, you exactly. know. I, I don't see it that way. I think it's a sort of a logical conclusion to a musical issue. And so really, like... Because we grew up, and I mean, it kind of fits that he's English, because we're sort of that, of that progeny, you know, we're sort of their uh, progeny or whatever, um, that it would sort of fit that I would, like, I realized that I wasn't really going to make something all that original, and I'm sort of okay with that. Like, I don't have a problem with that. I have no problem stealing, borrowing, or whatever, because there's sort of an end result in mind when I'm doing it. And and it is indulgent. And, I mean, any culture that um, indulges themselves in, well, in, its, in itself, essentially, in culture, in food, in, in language, in literature, in music, in art, um, is kind of indulgent to begin with. So, I don't really have a problem with indulging myself, I guess. <laughs> I, ha I can't, if I had a problem with it, I wouldn't do anything. Because right. I kind of, I was reading Adorno, and I was getting really all pissed off about, so I was trying to learn jazz at the same time, and I was reading about all of Adorno's critiques of jazz and the blues, which, in my mind, had already always stemmed from a folk music movement, and he had sort of reduced it to, you know, Guy Lombardo and, um, uh, what's his name? You know, the big band, big band leaders, and how canned and horrible it was, and how commercial it was, and how, you know, especially film music, too, had become so programmatic and overused and the themes had become stagnant and you know my response to that after reading that and feeling like really kind of depressed you know I was like god this guy's I mean if there's nothing original to be done then what's the point of doing anything yeah but then I realized that people have been banging rocks on the ground people have been stomping out rhythms have been building flutes for you know and doing this virtually the same thing just in very varied levels of complexity for thousands of nice. years, and it, who's it to me to think that I can actually change any of that? I'm going to embrace it and steal it, and right, you know. Well, that's my own personal tirade on that. And so. I think, to some degree, we both came to this similar conclusion from completely different directions, but yeah. similar conclusions with that is, you know, um, there's nothing invalid about any of that, and. Excuse and excuse me as I completely played the devil's advocate there because yeah. I frankly wanted to to see about eliciting that response from you. Cause I, um, <laughs> yeah. What did you get? What you thought you would get, or? Yeah, yeah, I did actually. Because you're like, yeah, your shit's kind of sounds like right. <laughs> <laughs> you're like, yeah, I know. I, I don't care. I, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I I I ran into this into the same thing with 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 my work, you know. Nobody's going to um, play indeterminacy like Cage, <laughs> but do I want to? Yeah, and um, I think a healthy dose of desire is well. God, if we didn't have desire and pleasure in what we do, why why the fuck would we do it in the first place? Right. Well, and I I mean out of I think why Cage is lionized so much too, especially by Western music. Um, because I don't think that his music has as much relevance outside of the Western idiom in terms of classical music and no, I don't think so either. Um, but I, you know, this is probably you could probably just consider this fact. But I think that uh, Cage actually did do something fairly original, and I shouldn't say do. He thought of things that were original about music. Um, he did do some things that. You know, some people considered laughable, like, uh, was it four minutes, 33 seconds, and all that. Like, right. it's humorous. It's a very Dada, sort of absurdist thing to do, uh, which I admire because I have a sense of humor, and I think it's funny to, like, force people to, to 
sit through an uncomfortable situation because it's, it, I mean, it's just kind That's of fun. That's another thing I was going to ask you about. Sorry to cut no, that no, no, of thought fine. there. Um, I, I noticed that um, some of your, your pieces, in particular with relation to the audience, and this goes to one of the pieces that was performed at the, the Omissions Festival, for those of you who probably haven't heard, and probably that would be most of you, was yeah. a, uh, a festival that uh, Andy and I put together in 2003, uh, chronicling enough. Oh, my God. Was it really that long ago? Yeah. Anyway, um, <laughs> using social discomfort, parody, absurdity, and just the general conventions of public performance as, in a way, as part as an instrument. And um, obviously there's humor in that. And um, I don't know. Would you talk about that for a second? Uh, well, I'm not really... <clears throat> not too sure what to say about that, except that I like... I, you know, I don't, I don't really... I mean, I shouldn't say that I like to make people feel uncomfortable. I mean, certainly there's an element to that in some of the work um, that I do or have done or thought about doing or, you know. But, you know, I, and I enjoy things that are evocative more than I enjoy things that are, are forcibly making people feel something like... That's why I hate movies. Like, I hate that CSI t TV show because... All they do during that goddamn show is they just show all the nitty-gritty blood and crap really up close, and it's like, you know what, I don't need that to get the story. Like, you're just throwing it in my face. And I kind of see that um, in the same way, like, um, I remember there was this performance. Oh, this is kind of a funny Evergreen story, actually, and Arun was actually part of this one, too. I was taking this program and feeding into that question about, you know, offending an audience. We had groups, uh, we had formed groups, and we, for, for the performance aspect of, or the musical performance uh, aspect of the program, we had to give a, you know, a final sort of, not recital, but, you know, as a group we'd had to compose something, theatrical, musical, or otherwise, and perform it for the class. And one of the performances was this puppet show where they, at the end of it, they proceeded to throw... <laughs> Uh, raw meat, like ground beef, like at each other, at the puppets on stage. And, and I mean, this is evergreen, and anybody who has ever been there, knows anything about it, knows that it's uh, staunchly liberal, uh, you know, it's like one of those weird little bubbles of a university, probably a lot like Berkeley or or maybe even a little bit of the UFO or, you know, Reed or something like that. Just, you know, a collection of extremely progressive, uh, idealistic people. Um, sometimes idealistic is, well, most of the time idealistic just is another word for unrealistic. But anyway. Keyword is bubble. <laughs> yeah, it's a bubble. So anyway, within that context, you know, imagine sitting in a group of people that are all very politically correct. I mean, but then there's a there's a certain contingency of people, and I was probably part of this group too. That they kind of loved poking fun at them, kind of like liked saying the wrong thing or doing the wrong thing. To uh, it's almost kind of like a a big brother, little brother, you know, sibling rivalry where the older brother will sort of pick on the little brother or vice versa just to get a rise out of them, you know, just to piss them off, you know, because it's fun to see their reaction. Not because you disagree with them, but just because it's fun to watch. Well, anyway, I think that's what this puppet show is about. They were throwing raw meat around because they knew that it would be offensive to... And I was a vegetarian at the time, and it didn't offend me. I thought, <laughs> I thought it was funny like a lot of other people. But this one girl comes up, and uh, she, she takes the ground beef, and she, like, she stops the entire recital. And I mean, this wasn't like a recital like in the performance halls there. It was a recital in one of the bigger classrooms. And she takes, she picks up the ground beef, and she's like... I want you all to acknowledge how sad this day is to watch this animal being thrown around with such disrespect. And, you know, she started to cry, and she got very emotional about it. And it was, it, it was kind of shaming, like shaming us for, for laughing and or not feeling like how she felt about it. It was embarrassing for her. And... Intellectually, I found it to be a preposterous way to uh, voice her objection to it. 
Because what she did is she went up there and she picked it up and it was like she was rubbing it in her face. She had it up and like this was her response to, I mean, if I had been in the group that had done that piece, I'd be like, well, we got exactly what we wanted, which was a, a an outburst, you know. And I just thought the whole thing was completely absurd. And so thinking about that and thinking about work that I've done, it's been about parody and, and, and satire and, you know, potentially saying or doing things on stage for reaction's sake or for uh, not even commentary really necessarily, but just, just to see what will happen or what how uncomfortable it'll make people. I don't think I've, I think there's part a part of me that likes that, but I don't want to do it like that. You know, I don't want to be the CSI. I don't want to be the throwing the ground beef. I don't want to be the guy, you know, taking a crap on stage or, you know, slitting his, I'm not going to be Gigi Allen, you know. Um, I'm not that kind of offending performer. Like, I had this one idea for a piece where the, the performers would mimic the audience, and it would be really awkward for the audience, especially because I would instruct the performers to make eye contact with an audience member and stare at them. Just one person, not looking around, but stare at them, and then copy everything that that person does, every shuffle in their chair, every movement that they make, even if they're sitting still, but somehow, you know, pick a gesture, amplify it, and repeat it until, you know, the entire mass of the ensemble is staring at, at a single person and they look like a bunch of lunatics because they're swaying back and forth, itching their nose, uh, you know, acting crazy. So, like, in my mind, it would... It, it would evolve from a really uncomfortable thing like the audience whoever the person was being that was being stared at would be kind of like you know looking at me you know that's kind of weird and they'd kind of react to it and then they get this mirror effect but i think now i don't know what the re result would be i never got to perform this piece but um <laughs> what i what i saw happening anyway is that it would evolve or devolve into something that would be really funny because imagine somebody in the audience then laughing, and then somebody on stage starts to laugh. Like, this could, this could devolve into several certain scenarios. Somebody coughs in the audience, somebody on stage coughs, and it grows louder and louder until you have, like, this weird thing where the audience and the um, performers become sort of weird. They're sort of each other's twin or doppelganger or whatever. You know, they're like, they have this weird symbiotic relationship that's not determined by even anything that I've done at this point. I've just given them three sets of directions. It's, it's basically a game. Um, and so I don't see that as being offending to an audience. I see it as being participatory. And I think maybe that's where some of these performance artists and some of these people who, who do these things to their audience, I think ultimately that's how they want their audience to interact with the, with the piece or with whatever they're doing. It's a way of inciting involvement because there's always been, especially in Western music, and I, that's why I was talking about Cage only being relevant to Western music in a way, and I think this sort of runs parallel to that at least, is that um, you have a very formalized way of receiving films, media, a lot of things, you know. Um, but it, but in particular, uh, things where where there's a stage and there's an audience and there's this fourth wall that we're not supposed to know about and pretend it's not there and um, so that being as formalized as it is, I think it's you know up to us to use that to our sort of com comedic advantage or absurd advantage to sort of uh, I don't know have fun with it I guess not be so serious all the time about sitting quietly in your chair and and just receiving something passively. So, I don't know. Right. Talk for a minute about the nerve. I know it's interesting, because, again, Andy and I have known each other for a long time. Um, it's, it's interesting seeing um, some of the work that Andy's done since he's been in the nerve uh, beforehand. I, I never know, have known Andy to play bass at least not regularly mm -hmm. um, until he played the nerve with the nerve with Jason and myself um, has that shaped in any any way your process with um, your own work being with a phony recordings we are going to pro predominantly be releasing 
your own work at this point in time. Um, yeah, it's it's my label, by the way. It's <laughs> I uh, he's uh, had a hostile takeover, actually. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to I'm going to be releasing three more albums within the next three months, and uh, uh, so the nerve. Yeah, how is that? Influenced me or what? Uh, yeah, sounds kind of silly when. Or, or what is that? <laughs> it? Repeated. Well, yeah, actually, you know, I mean that's very sort of appropriate, I guess, because the, the playing with you guys actually did influence me a lot because I think um, there was stuff that I started to write with you guys and then sort of on my own separately, and they the sort of two were almost interchangeable. Although, of course, I've got to think this about it because it's an ego thing but there is definitely a, a, a different signature between um you know what the nerve was doing or what i was doing independently of that even though the style was you know i mean arguably identical but um i'll just call it different because it's you know that's my song no but um yeah, no, I started playing bass, and, I mean, it led to me buying a pretty kick-ass bass rig, which part of it got stolen, um, which is a bummer. Uh, but I still got the bass, which is the important thing. The amp was replaceable. The bass isn't. Um, and, I, you know, it's cool because then I can sort of say that I play the bass. It makes me sound a little cooler. Um, it also helps a lot because I have a tendency to do... Like I'm gonna have an album coming out here soon. I still don't know what the hell I'm gonna call it. I, you know, I was, I almost need somebody else to name it something because I just I don't know what to call it. But it's a collection of songs that were influenced very much on the nerve stuff. Some darker stuff, darker sort of rock, uh, very uh, kind of dancey rock too. It's it's heavily influenced by New Order actually a lot of it, which sounds funny for me to say now because New Order was one of the first groups I ever remember hearing. Um, you know, because my brother, my older brothers were way into them, and we'd watch, you know, whatever it was, 120 minutes. I mean, New Order videos in the 80s were just the coolest videos. I mean, you know, there'd be like a, there was like Thriller, and then, you know, nothing else. You know, there wasn't that, I mean, there were other cool videos, of course, but New Order's always had this, uh, this gloss and finish to them, even if they looked kind of lo-fi quality, but they still always had like... Yeah, I mean, especially like "Touched by the Hand of God," where they're all like totally making fun of hair bands and metal bands, like the pyrotechnics and stuff. Like, you didn't see. I mean, of course, back then, you know, the music video was still a new medium. I mean, for you know, delivery to the masses like that. I mean, people always shot films of music, but you know, to have such a strange parody of like not only of like heavy metal like hair band music like poison cuz i when i saw that video i immediately thought of poison and uh but like they were almost kind of parodying themselves as being really famous too because like i actually didn't realize how famous they were cuz i remember growing up you know in Spokane and being 13 14 and like nobody knew who the hell new order was but like oh Spokane yeah we're both from Spokane as well yeah. um which, for those of you who do not know, is a city of about a quarter million people, 300 miles east of Seattle, Washington. It's across the mountains. It's very. It's an agrarian society. I like that. Hunter gatherer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Um, yeah. No, I don't know. Like, um, I well, I really miss playing in the nerve. And actually, I was thinking about you know, I'm trying to do this solo kind of singer-songwriter bullshit, which I just, I kind of loathe, actually, but I'm doing it anyway because it's sort of, you know, it's again, it's it's more, it's even more self-indulgent, I think, than some of the other stuff that I've done, but I feel good about doing it now because in a way I feel like, because like I was going back, like I said before, I don't give a shit anymore, like I just, I don't care, like, that I'm a music whore, that I'm writing, like, these folk songs that anybody could write, really, it's, it's just about me you know, writing about my feelings or something. I don't know, like... Um, but I was thinking about that, and I was like, you know, I really don't like playing my myself. I'd, I'd much rather play in a band, and, you know, I've just... I've got a ton of songs. And that's another thing, is I, I... That's what was great about The Nerve, is that we wrote all our songs together, really. I mean, Jason would bring something in that he'd already written, but 
we'd usually make it our own. I mean, I think the only song that we really kind of followed in line with from the air show days was uh, Elevation. Elevation, yeah. yeah. Which was the most similar to what it was in air show, Jason's old band in Spokane. Then, yeah. But, I mean, we still, I mean, I think we, we did it faster. There were some bass things that I did different. Certainly the drums were different. Yeah. Um, but it was more like we just brought our own playing styles to the same song, whereas everything else that we we did I felt was like definitely you know our sound or the nerve um, um, yeah but I think about that now and it's like I'd really like to go back to that because I first of all playing bass in a rock band for those of you who don't know is the it's it's the best job to have like I don't I mean Ben I know you're a great drummer and stuff yeah. and I play guitar too and I sing, but really the only thing that I want to do in a rock band is play bass because it's so much fun. And really, it's it's, I mean, depending on what you're playing, it's it's arguably a lot easier than what everybody else is playing. So you can I just have so many fond memories of just kind of like being at a show and just kind of like sitting back and almost like relaxing and like watching us play, you know, from a distance because I could kind of do it without thinking about it, you know, like playing one note at a time. I mean, there was some we had the the song that we dubbed the hard song. I don't remember what we even named it, which was harder for me because I had to work a little bit at it. Yeah. So I had that little intro thing, you know, and uh, I mean, it was still very repetitive, but I had a picking order that was very specific and... Right. Oh, oh yeah. 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 The nerve. Nostalgia. Yeah. Um, I, in a way that, I don't know, kind of transitions us into this whole label and... Sure. Yeah, um, how all of this happened? Well, I think your you, what that's your question for you, dude. Because <laughs> I, Ben's Ben uh, should take credit for having the idea at least. Ah oh, shucks! And I should get the credit for doing all the work. <laughs> no, just kidding. No shit, man. No, I'm just kidding. No, uh, no, we've defined our roles pretty yeah. well, and uh, well. I guess um, turning the spotlight back on myself here. Yeah. Um, Aphonia Recordings is a label I initiated. Um, well, originally got the idea for it late 2006. Um, I was actually getting ready to release um, Diatonic Genus as a compact disc, and I was like, "What's that again? A what? A, yeah, a Blu-ray." DVD. You said compact disc. A compact disc. Oh, a CD. Yeah, yeah. CD. A CD. Oh, okay. Yeah. Those are that's so like 1998. Dude. I know. Yeah. <laughs> if that. Um, but anyway, I was in that whole process, and I was really realizing, frankly, how how difficult this whole thing was. I was producing this artwork for the for it, and um, again, we get much better representation of the work I do actually by reading my scores and program notes than listening to me blabber about it. But um, I was including these program notes, including these scores and diagrams that had to be, um, you know, visually coherent um, as well as printable. Um, and I was finding the whole endeavor just extremely um, time-consuming and um, expensive. Mm -hmm. And and I got this notion of, well, why do I need to produce this myself? Why, why do I need to be the one who produces X number of copies with the hopes of selling X number of releases with X number of resources? That's three X's, dude. Yeah, and apparently they're all supposed to be the same value. Well, maybe they're um, the X, Y, Z. Okay. Okay, just to clarify. <laughs> Anyway, um, so I was like, well, God, um, what if I release this online? What if I um, made the audio files available? Um, most people um, have a CD burner or at least access to a CD burner or some means of playing music back digitally, which is essentially what the music itself is, a digital recording. Um, and viewing the viewing or printing um the content that i i feel is essential for my releases um and well frankly that's where andy came in with this um was having someone who 
um, who has the know-how and uh, yes. capability. <laughs> I do now. He does now um, <laughs> to uh, post this stuff online. <laughs> and along with that, um, just feeling like I had been out of the loop in terms of um, communicating with other musicians, other composers, right. I thought, what a really good opportunity to get back in touch with um, some of the people I'd worked with in the past. And frankly, I have a lot of friends who are really talented um, and good people who I think their work should be heard. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe it isn't as much before as much as it, as it should. And so that was the idea in starting the label. And um, yeah, there's, you know, <clears throat> experimental labels out there that sell a small number of releases, um, but making this accessible to everyone, um, not particularly to one to one scene in one town, right? Um, or one specific genre, I, you know, um, noise that only exists above three thousand hertz or something like that. <laughs> yeah, you know, all all those divisions of, um, of genre, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I point that example just to show how absurd the whole thing is, mm-hmm. but um, just making making that available and um, selfishly just being able to release my music and have people actually hear it. And so early 2007, we, or I shouldn't say we, Andy embarked on actually designing the site and um, getting that going, and here we are. Um, I don't know, Andy, what do you have to say about it? Uh, it's been a complete crapshoot. I've been, I had a loaded Gatling gun and I was firing into a completely dark room <laughs> hoping to hit something. And I did hit a few things. Yeah. Um, and we're almost ready to launch. We kind of missed our April Fool's launch. I'm... April Fool's. I'm, well, yeah, really. And I'm kind of, um... I'm kind of okay with totally lying in the future and saying that we did start on April Fool's Day 2007 because that just sounds cooler. We can't say that, oh, we started on April 7th. Like, eh. I mean, the other thing is we could wait till July 7th and it'd be 777 or something. But, and you know, I don't know. It, mostly it's a financial thing for us. I, I wanted to start by April 1st so that our quarters would <laughs> uh, divide evenly in the year. Um which seems kind of arbitrary, sort of, but... Well, I guess not arbitrary, but just sort of, like, really sort of business-minded. And and that's my my whole thing with the label, is that I... I mean, I have no illusions that people are going to buy a ton of at least my stuff. I don't know, we might get an artist on there, like... I don't know, Amy Denial might sell. Um, I certainly think people like Slim Twig will sell, and Marriage and Cancer will sell. Um... They have. They seem to have more of a gloss and a finish that my work doesn't. I, I don't know. That's kind of. I almost feel like I just need to hand off. I need to like give all my stuff to Jason and let him produce it and just like say, okay, I'm done writing it. I'm done recording what I'm going to record and then just dish it off to Jason and say, have fun with it because I know he would probably yeah. do it. It would take him it, like three yeah. years to do, but <laughs> it, it would be good in the end. It would kick ass. Yeah, yeah, but it's kind of funny, you know, with with that like how we initially started this. I I was essentially thinking a label that was for the most part um, purely ex- experimental um, and predominantly electronic in nature, mm-hmm. just from some of the work that Andy does uh, and some of, and frankly the majority of the work I do. Um, but it's, it's diversified a bit, um, you know, especially with inclusion of people like Swim Twig, Twig, uh, Marriage and Cancer, and other, um, pop groups that we find interesting and evocative. It's like, uh, sort of like, it's like dirgy, rockabilly, country stuff. It's like, especially, well, yeah, like, Slim Twig kind of has this swagger going for him, which, not that his stuff is even like that rockabilly even, really, and maybe he's got more stuff I haven't heard that seems more that way. It's more just like he has the, like, I'd like to see him live. I mean, Slim Twig is way over in Montreal. We've never met him face-to-face, and we've only had this sort of online connection, but... um, Initially, I didn't, it didn't make the connection of having him, or him or someone like that on the label, but it it's you know it's worked out really worked it's worked out well in that it's um diversified the uh, music we release and honestly it brings in more music we like because 
Andy and I aren't really just pretentious, pretentious jerks who uh, sit around listening to Cage and Stockhausen all day. We like Blue Oyster Cult, too. And um, yeah. so, you know. I, like, I even like some Lawrence Welk shit, so um, <laughs> I'm not going to try to explain that to you. I just It's not because I'm ironic or anything or like kitsch. No. I just think that there's something great about uh, really great musicians, like people who can just really play good music. Like, because um, think about it, back in the day, they'd set up a mic in a room and they'd have an entire big orchestra play it live. No overdubs, nothing. And it all had to be perfect, you know? And I just, I like that idea that, of that level of musicianship, and it's something that's fading and fading fast. Um, and maybe that's my issue with virtuosity is that I'm just not that guy that session player that can come in and, and play any genre. It's like, that's what I want to be, but I know I'm never like going right. to get to that level. Um, like I just have a handicap or something. I'll just be like, you know, <clears throat> but I blame it on a, dearth, a birth defect myself. Well, excessive pot smoking in my <laughs> adolescent days. Um, no. Uh, so, okay. Here's a really generic question. Sure. And, you know, maybe this this will kind of, like, be our, our fade out or whatever this would be. Sort of, like, not the not the mission statement or the, like, why are we here part of this whole crap. But, um, where, I mean, think about this for real. I don't know how much you've thought about it. I've thought about it sort of casually, like, kind of in passing. You know, it's kind of like... It's kind of like when I started my first website, I was like, what is it going to be like in five years? You know, like, what is it, what purpose is it going to play? What role does it have? And I mean, obviously the, the online store is a lot different than that. It's actually a business versus just like something I do for fun. I mean, I am doing it for fun, but it is also a business too. We, we have expenses and blah, blah, blah. But where, what do you see Aphonia doing, you know, in the next five years, to get to where you think, like, what, what, I guess, what, where do you see us in five years with Aphonia? In five years, um, I, I see, I see a larger network of uh, musicians and composers um, staying in communication with each other, and this is something I've already witnessed in just a couple of months of um, label being formed, people talking to people, um, you know, continents away at sometimes um i i see that that community growing larger and i see um more collaborations coming out of that i um i see more performances happening i know with myself i need a kick in the ass to to get going sometimes and i hope that's provided that for some people on our label who you want to give them a kick in the ass yeah Come on, Ben. Uh, I'd like to see you do that, actually, because... Well, wait till this interview's over, Andy, and you'll see. <laughs> okay. Um, but, um, where are the, yeah, where are the labels going in uh, in five years? Yeah, you know, I'd like to see... Um, I'd like to see um, people releasing things regularly, um, whether that, that is releasing something steadily every year, um releasing multiple projects. You, already, you know, we've already seen some of that happening already. Um, I'd like to see us establish ourselves um, in in terms of, <clears throat> I guess, getting, getting, I don't say that I really necessarily want or need the acknowledgement of um, larger independent music community or any local com local independent community, but I would like um to start more dialogue with um the communities that we 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 work in and where we're selling material and where we're performing material i'd like to see us performing more mm -hmm. i'd like to see us um i'd like to see what we're doing getting to more people i'd like to see um people getting exposed to like i always say this music that doesn't usually see the light of day um yeah. and because there's a lot of it out there and there's a lot of people doing it um, there aren't a lot of people necessarily hearing it. Um, maybe it's the nature of producing strange music is that um, it tends to come from more introverted individuals, but I'd like to change that a little bit. Yeah. Not the individuals, but the... <laughs> yeah. No, no, yeah. I, I get you. Yeah. Anyway, that's... 
pretentious mouthful, but... Um, well, it's very altruistic of you, Ben. I, I don't know about that. I just, I want to, I want to, um, I want to play an arena really bad. <laughs> I want, I want people, when I'm playing diatonic genus movement to live, I want, I want to see lighters swaying. Okay. I want to see a stadium full of, of people. teenage girls, like, <laughs> Taking off their shirts and waving them at, throwing them on the stage and throwing their panties on the stage. <laughs> You're going to be like, a, you know, a modern, like, or I shouldn't say modern, but like the Tom Jones of electroacoustic music, dude. <laughs> and essentially that's what my goal is. Um, I actually have um, a team working on pyrotechnics. Um, it's a veritable. It's a multimedia extravaganza. It is. It's like it a is. smorgasbord. There's um, like a hundred. I have things. some animal trainers too. Um, <laughs> we're going to get some albino tigers that we're going to be on stage too. You're but, taking this to Vegas, then, aren't you? I mean, this is all Vegas. I would um, think you would want more like, you know, Gila monsters and Komodo dragons or something on yeah. stage. But they're kind of small. They're not like, you know, tigers are. They're huge. They're very heavy. They have presence on stage. Yeah. I mean. Well. Yeah. I mean. I mean, owing to your fascination with reptiles, I figured that you'd want to include some scaly. Yeah, that your... that will be that will be there too. Okay. What about you, Andy? What about me? Well, yeah. What about you? Where, where, where do you want all this to go? Well, honestly, I mean, I'm not gonna. I really like the fact that I'm getting exposed to all these people that I didn't know about before, and I'm hoping that other people will have the same experience. Um, it's kind of like one of those epiphanies. You realize that, like, one, for me, it was like, you're not special. Two, um, but by virtue of of having a network and a community of people, it makes you, uh, gives you a place to fit in. I don't know. Like, I kind of been feeling like I'm just a little island, you know, yeah. drifting out and just doing my own thing and not really having a venue. And, I mean, part of that's not performing enough, and that's something I want to do more. But... Um, and I'm hoping that this will sort of like galvanize that for me. A lot of the things you said, really. Um, and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm going to be forthright about saying that I want to make money for artists. Like that's my, as much as I'm like an anti-DRM guy, I don't really care about copying information. You know, I do, however, feel pretty strongly about if I really want to own a record, let's say, or a CD. I would much rather go and buy it. Like, it's like, um, have you ever seen, like, over in China, they sell these, like, iPods that look a lot like iPods, but they're totally not iPods, right? And they're really cheap and flimsy looking, and um, they're, they're obviously cheaper to buy, but they're pawned off as actual iPods. That's kind of how I see the difference between, like, you know, I mean, we're, we're going to get there eventually with what Aphonia does in terms of, like, I, I want to be able to release vinyl at some point. You know, like, we've we've got a business model in place. I think eventually we'll get there. Um, right now it's stepping stones. The online download world is low overhead for us, cheap music for our customers, and a lot of profit for our artists. And that, I think, is going to drive us in good places. But what I want to get to is selling CDs, records, you know, etc., and because I want artists to have what, you know, other more famous artists with distribution have, which is that product, you know. And that's why I think it's cool that we're offering this extensive album artwork and stuff is that, you know, we can't print it for you. You can print it however you want. You have the you kind of take that into your own hands and do what you will with it. But, um, you know, I want to I have that. I want to create a venue for that product to be sold and ultimately um, you know people will buy it and they will feel the same feeling that I have when I go out and buy a new piece of vinyl I'm like or, or a new CD and like this is the real thing like this is what you're supposed to have this is the archival this is this this is the album you know and they're also talking about now like I, I certainly pay attention to this a lot more than I used to but Apparently, singles downloads on like iTunes and these stores are just skyrocketing, and there there's this talk in the industry about the idea of the album being like dead or something or dying or whatever, and I think it's the same thing about what they were saying about film dying or or even I mean really tape did die, but 
um, which is a shame, but it kind of makes sense too. Um, whereas I don't think film will ever really die unless the cameras got get really ridiculously inexpensive and or look, because there's just nothing that looks like film. And certainly there's nothing that sounds like tape either. Um, all the high-end studios still use tape. Um, it's a total tangent, but... Um, what the hell was I talking about? <laughs> anyway, yeah, no, just <clears throat> making money for artists. And in five years, you know, I'd like to see our sales... You know, I'd like to see us selling 10, 20,000 products a year, you know. I you know, I don't have any illusions that we're gonna be selling hundreds of thousands. I mean maybe we will. Maybe maybe somebody'll put it we'll we'll discover somebody and it will get huge. But you know, I don't that's not what I'm necessarily looking for. Um I'm not gonna say it wouldn't be great. It'd be good because the thing is it'd be good for all of the the it would have this halo effect where, you know, all the musicians around on the same level label would, would get that recognition too. It's what happens with that's what happened with K and Kill Rockstars. You know, they get one person that everybody knows, and then pretty soon all the records start selling. And like, who? Oh, they're on K. You know, um, I have the same thing with Matador too. Like, if I see an artist, I'm like, really, this is on Matador? Like, I might just buy it just to see what it's like. You know, um, and I'm kind of hoping that's what our label can be like. If somebody sees like a funny, be like, oh, I don't know. maybe I should just buy this and or like Zadik, you know, like Zorn's label. Just, right. They see that and be like, eh. Maybe I'll just buy it and see what it's like, right. you know. Well, that's, you know, labels like Factory or uh, 4AD, mm -hmm. two labels that I, I really like a lot. Um, and in a way, though the work I do doesn't sound like it, um, it's influenced me a lot in just, in just their general approach. Um, I know if I see something out on 4AD, there's a good chance I might like it. And I'd like people to have the same thing with Aphonia. Yeah. But at the same time, not be exclusive. Right, right. Yeah. Well, I don't want. Yeah, I don't want us to become narrow-minded about it, and I don't think we have been okay. um, until the big bucks come in. Yeah, until we start, you know. And and I mean, for those of you out there listening, I mean, I'm going to assume that a lot of the people that are going to listen to this, at least the first time around, are either going to be on the label already or be friends of people on the label, but. Um, God, I just totally lost my train of thought again. I think I'm getting tired. Yeah. Um, this God. is like a commentary on a DVD or something. Yeah, I know. It's like, uh, yeah. God, you wouldn't want the commentary on my life right now. Um, <laughs> listen to my music instead. Um, no, but I just, I, you know, I don't want to see us become narrow-minded about, um, and I don't think we will, but like I'm saying, I. it's kind of one of those weird things like, almost the it's like our taste in music I'm like sort of analyzing this out loud thinking out loud it's like our taste in music becomes and and it's sort of like our collective taste because you know it's like what happened with Slim Twig like or you know one person knows somebody else and they know somebody and then pretty soon we all sort of realize that we're all we're all kind of intertwined uh, musically without even knowing it and that's the cool thing about starting the community is that we sort of make the connections official uh, in this case, via contract, which is signed in blood um, by our artists. It's true. Um, comes with their immortal soul. Um, it's, it's much like Faust. I'll say that. Um, well, anyway, yeah, I guess I was. Well, what I, I think what I was going to say was something in, to the tune of people who are listening to this don't know who we are, or what we're doing, or who Aphonia is, and. And I hope that, uh, just to sort of maybe wrap this up, because we've been going for a while now, we might even turn this into two podcasts, I don't know, um, is to say that, you know, we look forward to, you know, obviously the website's aphoniarecordings.com, um, our, all of our information is there, um, my name is Andrew Senna, I'm an artist on Aphonia, and I guess technically considered a co-founder. I don't know. I would say so. Okay, Ben. It, well, Ben's the CEO, so <laughs> he's also chairman of the board. <laughs> I think um, the executive officer was the title oh, on my business card. Um, okay. Yeah. So, um, but anyway, let's see. I, we don't know who we're going to be interviewing next. Um, I, we'll probably shoot for somebody local. I'm thinking. Yeah. Um, maybe. 
maybe when we go down, if we go down to Olympia, because we might be playing a show, maybe it'll be either Jason or maybe even The Nerve. Um, although I would like to interview somebody who actually has a release out on the record. <coughs> <laughs> hey, we can't be all things to all people. I mean, you know, I'm Andrew Senna, I'm The Nerve, you know. I'm yeah. Ben Robertson, Ben L. Robertson. Yeah. I'm Ben D. Carlos. <sighs> yeah. Um, I'm whatever you want me to be. Mm. So I guess that about does it. About wraps are all up here. Um, it is just time check. What is it? Is that real? The real time right there? It's four thirty. It's five thirty. Five thirty on April fifth, two thousand seven. Uh, we, we don't have a call sign. That's kind of weird. You just say the the, you know, like this is K W B S. You know, I don't know. <laughs> um, yeah. So this is Andrew signing off for a phony recordings. Um, see you later. Bye.